The current ultra-right, far-right Netanyahu government in Israel has accelerated the nonstop war against the Palestinian people. Many have died already this year. Many are children. At the same time, hundreds of thousands of Israeli citizens have been in the streets in large-scale protests, sometimes in the hundreds of thousands, against the policies of the Netanyahu government. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy this show, if you rely on this show or both, show your support by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. Today, we're talking with Miko Pellet. Miko is a human rights activist. He's the host of the Miko Pellet podcast. He's the author of The General's Son, A Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. He's also the author of the book, Injustice, The Story of the Holy Land Foundation Five. You can find his podcast, his books, and much more at mikopelled.com. Welcome to the show, Miko. Thanks so much, good to be with you again. Thank you. Miko, I was thinking in the last couple of days about the trajectory of public opinion, both in the United States in the world, around the world, and of course, inside of Israel, over the past couple of decades, when it comes to the orientation, position, strategic outlook of the Israeli government. 20 years ago, it was actually 21 years ago, on April 20th, 2002, as the national director of the Answer Coalition, I was very involved in organizing a protest in Washington, D.C. about the Israeli reinvasion of the West Bank. There was the terrible massacre at Janine. Many, many people were killed. Obviously, the Bush administration with Tony Blair had conspired with the Israelis to give a green light, at least, to that invasion. We had a demonstration of about 100,000 people on the ellipse, right by the White House, under the slogan, Free Palestine. We were also starting to get ready for what became the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So it was free Palestine, no war on Iraq. A few blocks away, there was another peace demonstration, just a few blocks away at the Washington Monument grounds by other people in the, in the US anti-war and peace movement. And they wouldn't march with us or rally with us at that time because they said, we can't deal with Palestine. We're gonna have a demonstration for peace and against war, but if you demonstrate for Palestine explicitly, you'll be marginalized in American society, so we can't do it. And we went ahead and this, there was this split and 100,000 people rallied for Palestine. And it, in a way, it was a watershed moment. It was very historic because the taboo on being supportive of Palestine kind of lifted and we proved that you could be for Palestine and also have a very big anti-war peace movement. Here we are 20 years later, 
Miko, and you've been watching and following these events both in the United States and in Israel, and you were born in Israel, there has been such a sea change in public opinion since then within the American Jewish community in terms of world public opinion. There's the launch of the Boycott Divest Sanctions Movement, which is a truly global movement. And of course, the resistance of the Palestinian people won't stop because it can't stop. It's a matter of survival. I want to get your take on on where things have evolved or how they're evolving during this longer period of modern history. Well, again, thanks for inviting me and thanks for this fantastic question. I mean, it's interesting, as you were talking about that particular protest 21 years ago, a couple of weeks ago, there was an event in Washington, D.C. where Bezalel Smotrich, who is really one of the key figures in this new right-wing Netanyahu government, even by Israeli and Netanyahu standards, he is extreme. He is now the Minister of Finance, and he's a minister in the Ministry of Defense. He has an important role there. And he was here to speak, here in D.C., to speak at the Israel Bonds event. A lot of people don't know about the Israel Bonds, but they raise a lot of money for Israel through investment. And uh, a week before that, he made the comment about eliminating Hawara, and he's made comments, you know, racist, anti-Arab, anti-Palestinian comments his whole life. He was, a, you know, he's quite the racist thug. And there was a protest. There were two protests. There was on one side, there were the protests of anti-Zionists, pro-Palestinians with Palestinian flags and, and so on. And then there were the protests of the Zionists who just don't like Smotrich and this particular government. So there were so many Israeli flags there. And of course, they would not entertain the possibility of having a, a Palestinian flag on their side. So they were on one side of the hotel. It was the Grand Hyatt here. And we were on the other side of the hotel, two different entrances. This is, I think, a reflective of what you're talking about, what's supposed to be happening in Israeli society. So Israelis know how to mobilize. I mean, they've mobilized before. They mobilized after Sabran Shatila. They mobilized to get rid of Ariel Sharon. They've mobilized in 1973 after the 1973 war, was, you know, and so on. But it's always within the context of the Israeli Jewish supremacy and the privileged society within the apartheid regime. It rarely ever includes anything that has to do with the Palestinians or includes the Palestinians. So just like happened a couple of weeks ago here in D.C., neither one of these protests was very large. There were a couple of hundred people here, maybe a couple hundred people there. But the ones who are you know, inherently pro-Israel and are Zionists don't want to have anything to do with Palestinians. And as we see these massive protests of Israelis on the streets, they could care less about the Palestinians. It's got nothing to do with that. They still maintain that Israel is somehow a democracy, which it is for them, but not for the other half of the population, which are Palestinians, or more than half. So they're out there protesting. They don't want to have a Palestinian flag. They don't want to include Palestinians. The Palestinian issue is not their issue. And even the issues they claim are their issues, which is this judicial reform that this government is planning, is not 100% the reason they're out there. They're out there because they hate the fact that people like Bezalel Smotrich, who was a senior member of the Netanyahu cabinet, and Itamar Ben-Gvir, who was a senior member of the Netanyahu cabinet as well, and a few other members of this extreme right-wing settler group, are now leading their government, the Israeli government. You know, it's, it was okay when they were in the West Bank. When they were in the West Bank, running these settlements in the West Bank, and Israelis could say, well, they are not us. We're not settlers. We're good people, unless we live in the West Bank. And so suddenly these people are in their face. They're running the government. They're running the show. And Israelis don't like their faces. They don't like the fact that 
the real true face of Zionism is now looking right at them. As long as they were just looking at the Palestinians in the West Bank and terrorizing them, it was fine. But now they're looking right at Israeli society and saying, you know what? We represent you. We are Israeli society. We're leading the show. And that, I think, is really what's behind these massive protests, that they don't like the fact that Netanyahu, instead of creating a coalition with a war criminal, mass war criminal like Benny Gantz, who had a career, decades-long career of war crimes in the IDF and led the IDF and a few others like him, but are acceptable to Israeli society, Netanyahu chose to go with these others who Israeli society generally dislikes, or not only dislikes, I mean despises. And I think that's what this is about. So in, what's happened is the face of this society, the Israeli society, the face of Israeli politics has changed. Israeli society, I don't think, has changed. The direction in which Israel has been going since its inception in, you know, in 1948 has not changed. It was always going in the same direction. But they don't like these characters who say it outright, who say that there are no Palestinians, who say that they, you, know, you should wipe out a Palestinian town, who say that the ethnic cleansing of 1948 you know, should have been completed, and that sort of thing. It's okay to think it. It's okay to do it. But it's just not okay to say it in such a rude way. And I think... At the end of the day, that's what's behind these protests more than anything else. I mean, yes, the judicial reform has its, you know, there are serious issues, but that is really, I think, what's behind what's leading these people. You know, one of the important forces, of course, of support for the Israeli project has been the American Jewish community. And I was reading just in the last couple of weeks, Miko, that the topic that's most difficult to talk about at synagogue in the worship services is Israel right now because there's such a political polarization. So I wonder how this dynamic plays out over time because the American government, especially since 1967, and we'll talk more about why that happened, has kind of treated the Israelis as the extension of American power in the Middle East, not the only one. But the Nixon doctrine where that was adopted in the late 60s, where the U.S. premised its authority with Israel and Iran under the leadership of the Shah, a U.S. puppet who had been installed by the CIA on the throne. They were sort of the police, the gendarme of the Middle East for imperialism. But, you know, when you think about how Israel has survived, it's not simply the U.S. government. There has been a lot of support from American Jews. And if American Jewish opinion is impacted by the very far right and openly racist character of the Israeli government, where, as you say, they're not hiding it, the expansionist ethnic cleansing and racism of the government is you know, embraced, not hidden, not concealed, not camouflaged. You know, it does have an impact on American Jews who don't want to identify with a, a racist and openly apartheid regime. The mythology about the creation of Israel and all of the other myths that are created that have sustained it within the American Jewish community, as this sort of division happens, it would seem to me that more and more people, especially younger Jews, Jewish Americans, will not only be against this or that policy of the Israeli government, but turn against the project itself. And if you can't talk about Israel right now at synagogue, that must be very troubling to forces who are sort of key to the support of the project. 
Yes, you know, I think the term Jewish community can be a little misleading. You know, there's lots of communities in America which happen to be Jewish. So you've got the ultra-Orthodox, which we see sometimes coming down to the, you know, the representatives coming down to protest as anti-Zionist Jews. You know, it's a very large community of hundreds of thousands of Jews who are decidedly anti-Zionist. Then you've got, you know, people who don't care. Then you've got people on the left, you know. And then in the middle, I think you've got just a very, very loud group with these very, very large synagogues that on the one hand politically pretend to be kind of liberal, but are actually big supporters of Israel and have the big signs outside, we support Israel and so on. And they just have, I think, a very loud, you know, horn section. They're like the ones with the bigger microphones and a lot of money. So I'll give you an example of how ridiculous this is. You know, J Street had their conference in DC, I don't know, a month or so, two months ago. And Jeremy Benami, who was the founder and CEO, spoke. And in his speech, he talked about the protests because there, there was already there was always some problem that American Jews who consider themselves liberal and Israelis who consider themselves liberal had with this government and with the people, these major players. And he said that even the general Gadi Eisenkot, who was a former IDF chief, said that there should be millions marching in the streets against this government and he will lead you know, he'll be in the front. And I thought it was very interesting that he mentioned Gadi Eisenkot of all the generals, of all the former generals, because Gadi Eisenkot was Israeli army chief of staff during the Gaza Great March of Return, where Israeli snipers shot thousands of protesters who were unarmed, marching for democracy and freedom. And Jeremy Ben-Ami, this, you know, icon of Jewish liberalism, American liberalism, he's the one that Jeremy Ben-Ami decided to choose, that war criminal, the one who stood and led this massive murderous campaign against Palestinians in Gaza who did nothing but march to demand their freedom. So this is the hypocrisy within this conversation, you know, in American Jews. You know, you can't talk about this, you can't talk about that, you can't talk about Palestine, you can't have a Palestinian flag, you can't support Palestinian rights, you have to support Israel, but now how can you support Israel when it's got this ugly face? Even AIPAC didn't want to have anything to do with Bezalel Smotrich, who was here recently. And so I think it's time for these particular Jewish communities that are Zionists to make up their mind. Are they pro-peace, pro-justice, pro-human rights or not? Because if they are, they need to reject Israel and reject Zionism and stop, you know, wasting everybody's time, you know, and that's it. And it's a very simple choice. If they choose to continue to be Zionists, if they choose to continue to support Israel, then that's the way that is. Then stop pretending that you're somehow, you know, centers and icons of human rights and love and peace and, and all that sort of thing. So that this is a decision that I think that particular Jewish community, these people who, you know, are presented in the reform movement and the conservative movement who are very, very heavily Zionist and support Israel, not only in words, but in dollars, you know, the amounts of millions and millions of dollars, need to make up their mind. If you're going to stand there and mention Gadi Eisenkot as somehow kind of a beacon of, of democracy and a fighter for freedom, then you're out of your mind. You are out of your mind. And I don't know how many people in his audience knew and could relate to who Eisenkot was, but I'm sure any Palestinian hearing this or any anyone who was informed would just cringe that he could mention Eisenkot and marching for freedom and democracy in the same sentence. But that's the nature of this particular community. They don't want to decide which side they're on and they don't want to give up this crazy dream, this pie in the sky idea of this lovely Jewish democracy 
that exists in the Middle East. It was never a democracy, and it's not actually really Jewish. I mean, I don't know what's Jewish about it, other than they claim to be Jewish. So it's a level of hypocrisy that I think is important to expose as much as possible. Miko, you came from a family of that was very significant in the creation of the State of Israel. Your father was a general. You wrote a book about that, and I've talked to you about this numerous times. But for people who may be watching this show for the first time, let's just, again, at least briefly, talk about how how you went from where you were and where you were in a family that was so important in, in the creation of Israel and in the 1967 war where your, your father was a general to becoming someone who rejected the entire Zionist project as something that was inherently foundationally incompatible with human rights. And also, if you would, what would you say is the solution? What's the alternative to the current Zionist government, the Israeli government, not just in the West Bank, not just in Gaza, but in the territories that prior to 1948 were internationally recognized as Palestine? Sure. So like you said, I come from a family that was, you know, deeply, deeply Zionist, had deep Zionist roots. My grandparents on both sides came to Palestine as Zionists. On my mother's side, there were politicians and highly educated people. My grandfather was a spokesperson for the uh, Zionist movement, traveling around the world and speaking, kind of a more on a diplomatic role. He was a member of the provisional government of Israel before the state was established, or the Zionist government before Israel was established, and the uh, signer of the Israeli Declaration of Independence. On my father's side, they were working class, blue collar people. All of them, of course, were you know great socialists. All of them believed in socialism up to a point where, you know, as long as it was only for Jews, they did not want to include the Palestinians in any of it. And then my father was a young officer in 1948, which of course, in Israeli terms, is heroic beyond words, because we, you know, we considered it as a war of independence. And then he was a general, a member of the Israeli high command throughout the 60s, and then in the 1967 war. So that's, that was my background, you know, deep, deep regard for Zionism and a total belief in the Zionist story, in the Zionist narrative. And it wasn't until about 20 years ago that I began this journey, you know, because the subtitle of my book, The General Son, is Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. This journey from the sphere uh, that is very safe and clean and, you know, beautiful, to paraphrase Fanon, where the roads are paved and everything is green and lovely and safe, to the other sphere of the Palestinians, which are really across the street. And that began the shift. In other words, in my mind, that began the shift at the end of which I reach a conclusion that I cannot in good conscience support the Zionist project, that I cannot but reject Zionism in its entirety because it is a racist, violent ideology that produced an apartheid regime that has been committing war crimes after war crimes, crimes against humanity, apartheid being one of them, genocide and ethnic cleansing are the other two. And it's just to me completely unacceptable. So Kind of going back to the previous question, anybody who's Jewish and still supports Israel cannot possibly in good conscience believe in human rights and so forth. So that's where I come from. And as I look at what is happening today, I can see how that started very early on, even before the state of Israel was established, and now continues as a continuation here. The people in Netanyahu's government today are the successors of the, you know, of the very first Zionist leaders, without any question. 
in terms of the solution, there's really there are only only two options that I can see. One is supporting and continuing, allowing this apartheid regime in Palestine to continue. And if anybody had any doubt that it wasn't apartheid regime, the amnesty report from February of last year makes it very, very clear and shows without any doubt at all that the apartheid regime was established in 1948, in other words, the state of Israel, and goes on to this day. So one option is to continue supporting it and allowing it to continue, knowing full well that it is murderous, that it is brutal, that it is oppressive, and the violations against human rights, violations against international law continue on a regular basis. I think there is another option, however, which is to bring down this apartheid regime, just like the apartheid regime in South Africa was brought down, and to establish a democracy, a free democratic Palestine throughout all of historic Palestine, which, like you said, that country was Palestine going back 4,000 years until May of 1948. And so to establish a free democratic state, knowing full well that you have about 7 million Palestinians today, or 7.5 million Palestinians, and about 6 or 6.5 million Israelis. And so we're knowing full well that there's a very large majority of this new nation, this new creation that never existed before, which are secular Israeli Jews, you know, or Israeli Jews, some of them are not secular. I don't see any other option. These are the two options. So you either support racism and apartheid and violence, or you reject it, and then you stand up and do everything you can to fight it and create what I believe is the only option, which is a democratic and free Palestine. One of the sort of successes in the propaganda by the Israeli government and by the U.S. government, and as in Israel, you could be right-wing conservative or, or liberal, but the narrative is very accepted. So you have in the United States, for instance, Donald Trump and the forces even to the right of Trump, big supporters of Israel, but then Hakeem Jeffries, the leader of the Democratic Party in the House, he's like, Israel now, Israel forever, you know, like basically giving essentially like war speeches. Of course, the Democratic Party establishment, 100% uncritically supportive of the state of Israel. But part of the narrative, the success of the narrative is there was a genocide against Jews in Europe. They weren't the only people for whom a genocide was imposed during the period of fascism. Russians, Ukrainians, Roma people, the gay community. I mean, there was this terrible massacre of Jews and millions died. And then, you know, Zionism prior to that period, and I think most people in the United States won't know this, most European Jews were not considering themselves as Zionists. They were not looking to go somewhere else. They were looking for justice where they lived. They were looking to live free of racism and anti-Semitism where they lived, which is natural. But then there was this relocation effort after World War II where the idea was that Israel was a safe haven. Israel was a place where Jews would be protected, that they would not be victimized, that there was something fundamental about Jewishness and the Jewish people that required Jews to have their own republic somewhere else, and that this was indispensable, you know, for there not to be a repetition of what happened during the fascist period. And so Jews came, not forcibly, but systematically relocated from Europe. I would think, and I, I've read frequently in many places, that if people wanted to leave 
Europe after the Holocaust, most people wanted to go to the United States, but the United States basically closed its doors on a great deal of Jewish immigration. There was this colonial manipulation of the suffering of Jews for other purposes. And of course, it dovetailed with the, the Zionist movement, which had been a minority movement in European Jewry, but became sort of the vehicle for Western colonial powers. And the Zionists at that time always identified Zionism as a colonial project, and it could only exist as such. Let's just talk a little bit about that. Again, for people who are, who are perhaps newer to this subject. Sure, I think maybe the first thing to state out loud and very, very clearly that only a very, very small percentage of the survivors of the Jewish genocide in Europe, of the Nazi Holocaust, only a very small percentage of survivors actually came to what became Israel. And many of those who did go left, less than 10% actually came. You know, I mean, really the numbers were very small of percentage of the survivors. And many of them left. And I think it's also important to state clearly that what three years after the end of this horrific, you know, genocide of this Holocaust, where the idea of crimes against humanity was invented really as a result of that during the Nuremberg trials. Three years after that, the state that claims to be a Jewish state, right off the bat, as it is created, began by committing three crimes that are designated as crimes against humanity, genocide, ethnic cleansing, and the creation of the apartheid regime. Three years after the Holocaust, a state that claims to be Jewish is committing three crimes against humanity. And again, crimes against humanity idea as a legal idea was created as a result of the genocide that took place in Europe by the Nazis, the Holocaust. So I think these are things that people need to you know, understand and come to terms with. Now, I have a friend in Belgium, in Brussels, who was a survivor. His name is Jacques Boudet. I've interviewed him. I'll probably post some of the interviews with him soon. And he was an orphan. And as an orphan, he had no choice. He was 17 years old. His parents were killed in Auschwitz or taken. He was saved by Belgians. And then eventually, when he realized his parents were not coming back, he wanted to go home, but he couldn't. Because as an orphan, the Zionists came and took all the kids. And he couldn't wait to leave. He said this, first of all, he describes a part of Palestine immediately after the ethnic cleansing, which is rarely heard, how the cities were like empty. All these big cities, Yaffa and Lid and Majdal in the south, or Ashkelon today, these places were empty. And then he said he was looking for a job because he needed to make money so he could buy papers and leave because he couldn't leave until he served in the army and he wouldn't serve in the army because he was so disgusted by this Zionist project, which was so violent and militant. And he was given a job to guard a, an orchard that used to belong to Palestinians. So he was guarding the orchard so the Palestinians wouldn't come back and steal their own oranges. And he said, I was given a gun with ammunition. And he said, they give a 17-year-old kid a gun with ammunition and telling him that he has the right to kill Arabs because they're Arabs. And that started way back then and goes on to this day. And it's very interesting to hear this man speak at just how it impacted him as somebody who survived miraculously and through the assistance of the people that, you know, Belgian, he's a Belgian, and he wanted to go home to Belgium. And the, just this notion of violence, the creation of this militant, violent state as a response to the Holocaust, to this genocide in which his own parents were killed. 
And so today he stands up for Palestinians because he said not to stand up for Palestinians would be to betray his parents, the memory of his parents. Just like he said, just like as the Jews are kind of the, the inner side, the humane side of the Nazis, so the Palestinians today are the humane side of the Zionists, of the Israelis. And it's horrifying, you know. I mean, it's very telling to see a young man like, he's not young anymore, but as a young man, what he saw in those years and how he, he couldn't handle it because it was so violent. And again, the idea that violence, these crimes against humanity committed against Palestinians are somehow supposed to protect Jews and come as a response to the genocide of Jews where we would know very well that it's not what is going to save anybody. Violence never saves anybody and crimes against humanity are not going to save anybody. Only education and tolerance and that sort of thing is what is needed. But again, most survivors of the Holocaust did not go to what became Palestine. And many times people see Israelis and say, oh, yeah, well, kind of conflate what is Zionism in Israel is with survivors of the Holocaust. And that's not fair to the survivors of the Holocaust because most of them never went to what became Israel. And then you have, again, the ultra-Orthodox community in upstate New York, the Satmar community, which is, you know, numbers in hundreds of thousands. And they are all descendants, almost all of them are descendants of survivors of Auschwitz, the Hungarian community. And they are decidedly almost to the last one, almost to the last one, anti-Zionist. So I think these are parts of the story that, again, they're rarely brought into the conversation, but need to be presented and people need to be aware of this, that somehow the claim that Israel is a response to the Holocaust and somehow is justified because of what the Nazis did is absolutely ludicrous. It's cynical and it's, it needs to be presented in that way. Yeah. Thank you, Mika, for that history. You know, the United States wasn't always 100% in the corner of the state of Israel. And the U.S. government officials, like Richard Nixon, for instance, who was clearly anti-Semitic, I mean, he's not only a racist against black people, he was an anti-Semite. He didn't like Jews. He was anti-Jewish. And yet in 1967, when the Israelis carried out this sort of blitzkrieg-like war against the Arab countries and seized at that time the West Bank and Gaza and Golan Heights from Syria and a significant part of Egypt, the United States was very, very bogged down in the war in Southeast Asia. And I'm talking about the United States not the people of the United States, but the U.S. government, which is really an imperialist government. It is an imperialist government. It represents a global operation of military bases. It's not because the American people are being menaced by anybody. You know, the U.S. has 800 military bases, but the U.S. at that time was really bogged down. And at the same time, there was a rising tide of pan-Arabism. It was a secular left, anti-imperialist, largely socialist movement. It was supported by the socialist camp. There was a proliferation of Arab Marxist organizations. It looked like revolution was spreading all over the world in 1967, 1968, from Southeast Asia to Paris, where there was a general strike, the pan-Arab movement in the Middle East. You had, after the Cuban revolution, the rising tide of anti-imperialist movements in Latin America. It was a radical period. And it was under those circumstances Miko, that the U.S. decided on what became known as the Nixon Doctrine, which was the U.S. would use the State of Israel and the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, 
which were heavily armed and financed by the West, which had nuclear weapons, along with the Shah of Iran, who was put on the throne by a U.S., CIA, and British intelligence coup d'etat in 1953, that Iran and Israel would be the sort of the gendarmes, the police for Western powers, especially the United States. And starting then, it was really around that time that if anyone talked against Israel, you know, even if you were a liberal, if you supported the struggle against apartheid in South Africa or supported the rights of the Nicaraguans to be free of the Somoza dictatorship, wanted the end of the U.S. war in Vietnam. But Palestine and the Palestinians became completely demonized, and their struggle for freedom then was conflated with terrorism. And if the Israelis did anything militarily, it was self-defense. And if the Palestinians resisted, it was terrorism. And that narrative, Miko, that was more than a half a century ago, 1967. That narrative has largely remained the constant narrative, at least in the U.S. corporate-owned mainstream media and by U.S. politicians. If Palestinians resist, they are terrorists. If the Israelis go and kill a bunch of Palestinians, it's always an act of self-defense. And so there's this kind of, I don't want to call it brainwashing because that might sound, I don't know, too simplistic, but it's a dominant narrative and here you have, just since the beginning of this year with this new Israeli government, but it, you could have gone to the more liberal Israeli governments, this sort of escalating, not only occupation of more and more and more Palestinian territories, but the use of unbridled violence. And it's paid for since 1967 with American tax dollars. I'm saying this because there is also a growing movement that includes people of all ethnicities and all religions called BDS, where people are saying, look, this narrative is BS. It's not real, it's a false narrative, and we have to stand with the Palestinian people. Let's real quick just talk about some of that narrative formation and how BDS is an effort to sort of change the narrative. Well, I think there's two main things I think that people need to understand. One is that after the 1967 war, Israel had in its possession the largest stockpiles of Soviet-made weapons in the world outside of the Soviet Union. And as you were saying, the Americans were fighting against these weapons in Vietnam and helicopters were being shot down and they had all kinds of problems. And having act, getting access to these weapons was worth its weight, you know, 10 times its weight in gold. And the uh, Israelis made, made good use of that. And so that's one thing to remember. I mean, that was a very, very, very tempting. And I think the American administrations, regardless of who it may have been at the time, would not have passed on that, you know, the possibility of getting their hands on these weapons. And the Zionists, of course, made, made use of this as well. You know, very, very intelligently, immediately after the 67 war, it's Hunker Bean, who was the army chief of staff and was a massive, massive hero. He was considered a man who, you know, he was like, created a miracle, which, of course, we all know now is not true. Of course, it was, it was just a massive assault, you know. But... You know, he was a god. He was absolutely a god. Not the prime minister who was his boss. He was the god. In Israeli eyes, in American Jewish eyes. And the Israeli government then, who was led by Golda Meir, sent him over to the United States to be the Israel's ambassador in Washington. That was a massively smart move. He was a hero. He was a god. And of course, nobody, nobody would dare contradict anything he said. And this is precisely the narrative that Israel was pushing. Palestinians are terrorists. Israel is defending itself. Israel had just defended itself against three massive Arab armies 
And it was only because we are smarter and faster on our feet and, you know, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. We were able, and of course, we had a great man like Rabin leading the charge that we were able to defeat ourselves. And how can you not support a country like that? And we're the only democracy in the Middle East and on and on and on. Now, the Zionists on their own, since before Israel was established, you know, my grandfather was part of this diplomatic corps, which precedes APAC, of course. But then APAC and some of these other Zionist organizations have taken over, and they've been working very hard all of these years before 67, but of course, 67 was a huge, big help for them. Of course, they really maximized the potential of that in pushing this narrative into the American public. Not, I'm not talking about the corridors in, in Washington. I'm talking about every school and every county and every city council and every chief of police and every mayor getting this, you know, and every public school with their social studies, they were working on the ground in a very smart way to make sure that the American public doesn't have to think twice about supporting Israel. That by the time somebody does run for office, it's so deeply ingrained in them that it's not an issue. It's not something you don't have to deal with in Washington, D.C., although they certainly have a presence here. But it starts off at a very basic level. And so today, of course, we can have you can have all the ultra-right religious, you know, Christian Zionists and Trump supporters, and you can have, like you say, Hakeem Jeffries and the Democratic Party all completely, you know, agreeing on this issue, which is absolute madness, because what they should be agreeing on is that this is a racist apartheid regime that needs to be brought down. I want to go as we get sort of in the last stage here of our discussion, our conversation. I want to talk about Netanyahu because, again, I think you've adequately created the context to show that it's not really about Netanyahu the person. It's not about the right wing per se. It's about the project as a whole, the colonial and foundationally, you know, foundationally the antithesis of actual opposition of human rights. But I want to talk about Netanyahu. He spoke during Obama. Obama was trying to negotiate the Iran nuclear arms deal and did. And that was kind of a major achievement. It was called an agreement rather than a treaty because it would have never gotten a two-thirds majority in the Senate. So even Obama's own party basically wasn't going to sign on to it, you know, as a treaty, which would have made it the law of the land. And thus, Trump would have been unable to nullify it as he did. But Netanyahu came and spoke to both houses of Congress while Barack Obama, the sitting president of the United States, was trying to negotiate the nuclear arms deal, which would basically begin the process of normalizing relations between the U.S. and Iran. Not really, but kind of, sort of, in a, a thaw, at least. And Netanyahu came. Now, the Israeli government under Netanyahu was getting $5 billion a year or more in military and economic aid. He speaks to both houses of Congress and basically attacks the sitting president of the United States for trying to have a nuclear arms deal with Iran. So in other words, the most important diplomatic initiative of the U.S. president was attacked by another head of state before both houses of Congress. And while Obama didn't like it, he increased military aid to the state of Israel. That's when they had this decade-long $30 billion commitment and the U.S. media, like if it had been any other country that had attacked the sitting president while speaking before both houses of Congress, it couldn't have been seen as more hostile and insubordinate. It just shows the, the effectiveness of the propaganda campaign 
But again, it can't be just the propaganda campaign because there have to be institutional sectors like the Pentagon and the CIA, the state, the military, the, the most important part of the state that see Israel in some ways, at least so far, as indispensable to U.S. geostrategic interests in that region. Anyway, let's just talk about that episode, and then I'm going to give you one final question. Well, you know, what's mind-boggling about that is that just before the Iraq war, there's footage of Netanyahu testifying in Congress, and his exact words were that getting rid of Saddam Hussein would have enormous positive repercussions on the entire region. These were his exact words. And he was encouraging the United States to attack Iraq. That man, that man who said those words was now invited to speak, as you said, you know, you laid out the context where he was allowed to come and speak and receive massive standing ovation. It is absolutely madness. What is wrong with these people? I mean, most of them are old enough certainly to remember. Many of them were members of the House and Senate then. And then, of course, Netanyahu comes back and says the same thing about Iran. He says it in the UN. He's, he's been saying it for years. You know, I mean, this is like Iran is like a tree that they climb on every time they want to distract from what is happening in Palestine. Every time they need a distraction, they go, oh, look, Iran, Iran, Iran. You know, how stupid are these people who sit in Congress? How, what is wrong with them? How can they allow that man back into their chamber? The man who said those words that getting rid of Saddam, that basically called for a war against Iraq, would have enormous positive repercussions in the entire region. What is wrong with these people? And now they're listening to him and they've invited him, like you said, as the president was trying to work out some kind of a deal with Iran. He is the man that they invite to speak. These people are out of their minds and there's some kind of infatuation in this country with Benjamin Netanyahu and among Israelis too. But in Israeli, among Israelis, you can somehow understand because he's kind of managed to create this image of himself as really the only leader you can count on, the only leader that can get things done. But what is this infatuation here with him? And since he was elected, re-elected, Bill Maher, Joel Olstein, Jordan Peterson, a bunch of the networks, they're all inviting him to speak like he's some kind of a god, like he's Moses coming down from the mountain, and nobody, challenged him on what he said about Iraq. Nobody challenged him about the members of his new cabinet. Nobody challenged him about what is happening in Gaza all of these years. Over 2 million people living in an open-air prison 30 minutes away from Tel Aviv where people are happy and splashing in the beach, where Israelis are running around, going to restaurants, having parties. You know, when they bomb Gaza, you can see the smoke from Tel Aviv, from the beach on Tel Aviv. And there's this infatuation with this man. So it was absolutely madness. It was absolute madness, that situation. And here you are, Americans have accepted it. Both houses, like you said, have accepted it. Barack Obama, you know, bowed his head and accepted it as well. And like you said, it was actually a deal 10 years, not for 30 billion, but for 38 billion. That was a deal that was signed during the Obama time as this humiliation was taking place. He was being humiliated by Netanyahu. It was absolute madness. I don't know that there's any way to explain it other than it's some kind of strange pathology. Yeah, it was it was shocking. And not only, I'm glad you corrected me, it was $38 billion, not $30 billion. And then Netanyahu complained that it wasn't big enough. So he comes and attacks Obama in front of both houses of Congress, tries to sabotage Obama's most important diplomatic initiative, the Iran nuclear arms deal. Obama gives him $38 billion, and Netanyahu says as the recipient, 
No, thank you. That wasn't enough. Let me go now to this final question, Miko. And you're talking about, and I'm glad you mentioned Netanyahu saying, go to war against Iraq. That'll be really good. It'll really be terrific. It'll be good for everyone. And now, not only was it terrible for Iraqis, so many hundreds of thousands died. ISIS was created. There was Al-Qaeda came to Iraq, things that didn't exist before the U.S. invasion. Not only did it cause all of this human suffering for Iraqis, but it didn't work out very well for the United States. It didn't create like a puppet government in Iraq and where the U.S. now has this like stable ally in Iraq. As a matter of fact, if you look at the last 20 years, the U.S. position in the Middle East has shifted quite a bit and probably not to the benefit of the empire. The Iraqi government was an interlocutor for negotiations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And then finally, just recently, the Chinese, I'm sure you saw this, the Chinese foreign minister hosted Saudi Arabia, which was a traditional, I mean, the Saudi monarchy is a disgusting regime, but it was the traditional ally of the empire of the United States, having a rapprochement, a detente, reconciliation with Iran under the aegis, under the auspices, the banner of the Chinese foreign ministry. So the US has pivoted to Asia after the debacle with the Iraq war and is preparing for, I guess, confrontation with China. You, the US couldn't beat the Taliban, so why not get ready for a war with the People's Republic of China? But here you have China now coming into the Middle East and becoming like a major player I mean, when you look at what the U.S. is doing, in addition to hubris and arrogance and racism and colonialism, the stupidity, well, I guess stupidity comes from arrogance. You know, like people who are too arrogant and too have too much hubris, they make really bad decisions and there's no accountability. But anyway, with that said, Miko, I want to ask you, because you've been looking and watching and writing about this for so long, when you look at the trajectory of things, and I asked you in the beginning, what's the solution? It seems to me the U.S. position in the Middle East is actually weakening, that the Israeli position has additional complications and contradictions that are shaping globally. Where does it end? Where, how do you see this trajectory? You said it's either apartheid Israel or democracy in a Palestine where Muslim, Christian, Jew, non-believer live together as they did live together for many thousands of years prior to the creation of the state of Israel. Anyway, the trajectory, I know you don't have a crystal ball. Let's pretend you do and let you make some predictions. Well, I don't think you need a crystal ball. I think we, we've seen this game played many, many times. I think if anything, you know, as the United States and Israel are rolling, you know, bending over backwards to get the Saudi regime to recognize and establish relations with Israel, not only did they not establish relations with Israel, they've reestablished their relations with Iran, Israel's main nemesis. I don't think there can be a bigger slap in the face to the Biden administration and to the state of Israel than that. And like you said, this is all hosted by the Chinese. And out of you saw, there was a big ceremony in, in Moscow where the Chinese president was just visiting there. And people have compared it to, you know, Nixon's visiting China in the 70s, 1972. Massively, massively important developments taking place here. And so I think, first of all, I think that, you know, diplomatic relations between these two major forces is always a good thing. It's better than, than war, that's for sure. 
And of course, it will have its effect on all these proxy wars taking place all over the place where two sides you know, represent Iran and Saudi Arabia. But I think it's a massive blow to U.S. diplomacy and to the state of Israel. I will say, however, at the same time, something that has been extremely concerning is the fact that the most the countries that we always expected to be the most dedicatedly anti-Zionist and pro-Palestine, like Malaysia, Indonesia, Pakistan, are warming up to the idea of normalizing with Israel. And there are forces, serious forces within these countries now who are pushing for normalization. And they're saying, well, actually, why not? You know, the African countries are doing this. The Arab countries are doing this. Why should we stand alone and not do this? And so, you know, I've been talking to people there. I was just in Malaysia you know, about starting a campaign against that, which is unheard of. So as all these developments are taking place, and I think by and large, they're very interesting, and, and these two powers getting together, I think is a good thing. There isn't a weakening of the state of Israel. There isn't a weakening of support, you know, for Israel, certainly not in China, certainly not by Russians. I mean, Russia has a great relationship with Israel. Putin and Netanyahu talk, you know, very often. It's well known. And that to me is very concerning. And now, of course, like I said, Muslim countries, the most you know, pro-Palestinian Muslim countries historically are now warming up to Israel. The Israeli under-20 soccer team was just given permission to play in Indonesia because the under-soccer, I guess, that world championships is taking place there. I'm part of a campaign to get them to not allow the Israeli teams to play because under-20 Israelis are all soldiers. If they're under-20, that means they're soldiers or they're soon to be soldiers. So my concern is that it's not weakening Israel. And it's not bringing us closer to the fall of apartheid and the creation of real democracy with equal rights in historic Palestine. So that, to me, is the serious missing piece that, you know, people like us need to be pushing for in one way or another. Thank you, Miko. Miko is, again, the author of The General Sun, A Journey of an Israeli in Palestine, the author of another book, Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land Foundation Five. We didn't talk about that, but I wanna really encourage people to get that book. This is another gross travesty of justice. You can find his works, his books, his podcasts at mikopele.com. That's M-I-K-O-P-E-L-E-D.com. Miko Pellet, thank you so much. Always a pleasure, thank you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.